Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah. So when last I left you, yes, um, we had organized the government. We were president. We had yes, organized we- the government. We had taken in um, information and were processing it yes. into a big wonky vision or into not a vision if we don't have a vision thing. That's right. <laughs> or I'm sorry, a vision thing. Thing, that's um, right. Yes. T-H-A-N-G, yes. Uh, if we don't have a vision thing, but we also agreed that at some points it's okay not to have a vision if you're living in the right time. Like if if the time yeah. doesn't I mean, need a vision, we just need you to be the gap dude. Yeah, you and, know, it, the, the, which the world. We should, I shouldn't call 41 the gap dude. That's really rude for somebody who spent his life in service. But no, but, 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 but again, I mean, no, no president runs for office saying, well, I hope there's going to be a world war, a Great Depression, um, <laughs> and the stock market's going to uh, uh, fall off the, the face of the earth. I mean, nobody does, right? Yeah, I don't think that 43, on the day he finally, like, the whole election was solved, you know, because yeah. the 2000 election filled with drama, right? But I think when he finally got all that solved, I don't think he thought, oh, I hope there's a giant hurricane that breaks all the levees, and I hope that 9-11 happens on my watch. He didn't even know what 9-11, not 11 was just a date right yes. it wasn't anything and yeah, i mean you know and then and then i hope we end on a huge fiscal crisis because yeah. yay right like i doubt he said any of that yeah i i don't imagine his father when he was running for president in 1988 said hey guys if we get elected president i think we need to be ready for the berlin wall to come down in the cold war to end And for Iraq to invade little Kuwait, who's like, "Um, excuse me, what we do to you? Like, (laughs) because I feel I I have always felt somewhat sorry for Kuwait in that because that's like that's a bully. That's the that's the that's a really big kid knocking a really small kid down. I mean, really, what are there like 20 people who live in Kuwait? It's tiny. I mean, you want to talk about being a little pawn in the big geopolitical war? Exactly. <laughs> they're they're looking around, going, um, "We're like the Falkland Islands. We don't understand what happened. Yeah, we're just it, a bunch of penguins standing around, and all of a sudden, Britain and and Argentina are going bonkers, and we don't get it. You want you want to sacrifice us for what? <laughs> For what chess strategy, huh? Yeah, what, huh? Yeah. So, so okay. So now we have the vision, and we have to express it. Yes. Right, because a vision, a vision under a, I was going to make some sort of under a barrel is no vision, but that doesn't make any sense. But if you can't communicate the vision, then you might as well not have one. And this, and this all goes back to. Uh, the president that most presidential scholars say ushered in the era of the modern president, Theodore Roosevelt, the infamous bully pulpit. Really? Right? Teddy Roosevelt rather than Kennedy? Because I immediately went to Kennedy. Nope, nope. Huh. Uh, uh, most scholars um, say it was Teddy Roosevelt 
because Roosevelt basically argued that the United States Congress uh, was not going to uh, respond to corporations, trusts, etc. Um, Teddy Roosevelt also thought the United States needed to be much more active in the international community. Um, he, he was rather highly traveled, right? He had been yes. to Cuba, he had been to Mexico, he'd been to Panama. Yes. He kind of had. Yeah, I mean, and he was. Well and he was out west, and he had done a lot yes. of stuff with parks and. Yeah. Okay. I think the so, first national park was under. Yes. Teddy Roosevelt. And, 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 and most modern presidents love Teddy Roosevelt for what he did with national parks because Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, by law, had no authority to create the first national park, but he did so anyways via an executive order. <laughs> really? Don't yeah. you love presidential power grab? <laughs> well, and who's going to argue with that? I mean, really, yeah. an executive order creating a park yeah. isn't going to get opposed. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, we don't need any more parks. What's wrong with you? Why do we want green space? Yeah. So was he, okay, wait. Let me ask you, I know I'm going to ask you an aside question, Sure. but, but I'm not trying to be a jerk. I really yeah. don't know. Is he the first president that had a, a, a motto? I don't even know if that's the right word. Um, you slogan? know, that whole a slogan, right? That whole um, walk softly and carry a big stick. Yes. Is he the first one to do that? Or did there were others before him? And I just don't know about them because they're not as cool. There are others who had them, but Teddy Roosevelt had a, a platform, if you will, with the the rise of the modern press that other ones did not. Right? Oh, okay. Okay. So, okay. I mean, you a lot of this is, again, and you mentioned this in the previous podcast episode, is timing, right? Okay. You had a president who conceived of the office in a certain way that corresponded pretty nicely with other changes that were also going on in the United States and around the world, right? But in terms of slogans, yeah, there, there, there were other presidents who had slogans. Um, uh, and, and of course, now that you've said this, I, I'm drawing a blank, if you will, but most presidential campaigns come up with slogans. Some of them never resonate with the public uh, some slogans um, uh, are created by opponents, and they end up sticking. <laughs> oh, nasty ones about Polk and Taft and all those guys. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Okay. But so this idea that the press would focus on the president um, was somewhat unusual uh, when Teddy Roosevelt kind of sort of stole the stage, right? Was so... At that point, so press is, so we're talking about what we think of as the modern press where you have newspapers that are widely distributed. There's- Because of the they're, telegraph. They're, they're a lot less expensive. Yes, you got the penny press, okay? The cost of, of, of printing daily newspapers fell dramatically in the late 1800s. Okay. They were able to be, if you will, shipped, air quotes, uh, became easier because of the telegraph. So the New York Times, for instance, could be published in the city of New York on a Monday. And by Tuesday, they could be read by people in, you know, 
on the West Coast. Oh, I didn't realize that newspaper yes. articles were sent by telegraph. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Made, if you will, this idea of national newspapers, you know, possible, right? Oh, and so, oh. of course, the yes. president would be a person who would make the news because... Yes, right? Everybody wants to know what the president is, is doing. Um, but okay. before that, you didn't have the ability to get that information out. Yes. And before Teddy Roosevelt, most presidents, and we've talked about this, um, I think it was maybe uh, um, season one or season two. I mean, in the 19th century, the dominant branch of the federal government was still the Congress. You had a few exceptions, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, but most presidents in the 19th century, <laughs> according to presidential scholars, by and large, a mediocre bunch. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'm going to throw out here that they're the ones that are hard to remember. <laughs> when you're when you're going through the list, I'm not trying to be ugly. And I, of all our pre like Bill Newman, who's a presidential scholar, I'm so sorry that I'm saying this, where you might hear it, but you know, you get those guys in the middle, the Taylor, Tyler, Harrison, Pierce, guys, you know, Van Buren. I don't know where those guys fall in. I know they're in there somewhere. But I'm terrible about that. And then you yes. get to the to the 1900s, and I sort of, of course, pick back up because, yeah. Well, well we, and it makes sense because then the presidents are the focus of the press, and they're the and focus. that's a lot easier for the press yes. than than Congress. Yeah. Congress is this huge body of of individuals, but the president is one person, so it becomes easier to pick yes. up on whatever they say but also their scandals and everything else because you're focused on an individual oh so teddy roosevelt was the first to yeah. sort of say hey i can use this to my advantage yeah and 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 you also begin to see scholars begin to critique the effectiveness of presidents as communicators right um, before I mean, then, it didn't matter if they communicated. It didn't Nobody really cared. matter all that much, right? <laughs> because, you know, again, you know, uh, the dominant branch of the federal government was the United States Congress. Um, but, I mean, increasingly the public, um, uh, you know, and it's a chicken or egg, you know, type of argument. Did the media direct the public's focus to the president? Or was it the because the public went ahead and said, we want to know more about the president? And then the media was like, Okay, we'll give that to you, right? Right, because we want to sell you a newspaper. That's right. But at the end of the day, what you begin to see um, is this emphasis on presidential administrations being able to communicate. And some have been good, and some not so good. <laughs> being, so, dip being diplomatic here, right? Did did early presidents in this era and i know I'm, I'm not talking about the the presidents who i get confused about where where they fall i'm not talking about those presidents i'm talking about theodore roosevelt forward did they have press secretaries or people who managed the press or did that slowly come in as the press got more and more involved with the presidency starting with teddy roosevelt pretty much every president had uh, what was known as a press secretary, um, starting with FDR. Uh, and again, the executive office of the president, the so-called West Wing, 
um, is not created um, until FDR's predecessor, um, Hoover, right? Hoover, oh, was, okay. Hoover, Hoover was the one who got um, the budget allocation from Congress to create an executive office of the president. That's oh, the, so before yes. that, they just kind of had personal secretaries, secretaries that helped them out. And, yes, okay. Okay. Um, you know, usually somebody in the press corps that had been covering them for years and they developed a really good personal relationship, um, all of a sudden went on the payroll as their spokesperson. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Okay. Right? Okay. Uh, but FDR, starting with FDR and moving forward, every president has had a communications office, right? Which I like to think of as their marketing branch. Sure. Sure. We're going to market this incredibly bad presidential idea to you in a way that's going to make you love it. Sure. Right. And you're going to want to buy 54 of them or whatever it is. Like, well, yeah. I mean, Hey, it's like a private sector corporation. Uh, I mean, Hey, uh, even interest groups, nonprofits, they well, all, they or we're going to make this super unlikable person likable. Well, yes. Like that's a struggle for presidents who aren't personable. Richard Nixon, I'm looking at you. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, Rich, Rich, Richard Nixon. Not in, warm and fuzzy. Was not warm and fuzzy, right? I mean, we talked about this uh, a couple of podcast episodes ago in regards to presidential personality. Um, yes. Um, the thing that made him so effective as a politician was also the thing that brought him down as a politician the chip on his shoulder, the desire to go ahead and show people that he was smart, he was intelligent, uh, that he had a vision was the same thing that brought him down. Because he wasn't all that likable as a person. He was paranoid. He was mean. He, he engaged in revenge, right? Um, I mean, think about LBJ, okay? Uh, LBJ, in many ways, was not all that likable as a person, OK, and in terms of personality, um, by today's standards, um, you know, borderline schizophrenic. OK, um, he went from, you know, being optimistic and energetic to angry, mean, despondent. How do you go ahead and make that palatable? <laughs> OK, you hire a press secretary, you hire. Yeah, right. You have a you hire a team. Yeah, you have a communications office that, that shows the president yeah. doing nice things instead of picking them up by the ears because it don't hurt them as much. Yes. Right. When that yes. happens, then you have somebody who scrambles. But and also, figures out how to fix it. But also, too, as Greenstein points out in his book, um, so much of what we focus on um, is presidential speeches. Um, right. Their ability to give a speech um, that has content, but also has, if you will, uh, a particular overarching message that even if you don't remember the specific words, you walk away from the experience with a particular, if you will, feeling or emotion, right? And whatever else you may say about LBJ, his war on poverty speech yes. is powerful yes. because he believes it. Yes. And he's laying it out as a, we can do better. We can yep. be better as a nation. And this is what we're going to, this is how we're going to do it, which is really, 
impressive, right? It's it's a. I like the presidential speeches, and and there's a. Um, I'll link to it on the research guide. There's a there's a project that gathers all of the presidential speeches, and of course there's the president's paper, you know, papers of the president. Um, but I like those because they give you a very um, a really interesting feel for the way a president delivers their information. I know that they're not always written by the president. In fact, they're usually a group effort by a whole bunch of people. Yeah, they're, um, they're, uh, the speech writers are part of the um, uh, West Wing's uh, communications office. Yep. But, but I really believe that if they asked a president to say something that the president couldn't pull off, you would hear it. Like you would yeah. hear it in the speech. So it yeah. still has to be that person's voice. It still has to be that person's um, uh, vision, if you will. But also too, and this should not be um, undervalued, uh, Nia, and that is some people are good at communicating and explaining their thoughts, their vision, if you will. And other people just aren't. They're not Ronald good Reagan speakers. was brilliant. Okay, yeah, and and and, and I know plenty of, of of liberals, you know, discount Reagan's um, effectiveness in giving speeches to, well, you know, hey, he was a failed actor and blah blah blah. But I'm like, hey guys, you know, think about how Reagan and his speeches um, communicated his administration's vision. Think about, for instance, FDR's fireside chats, um, speeches that were broadcast on radio, uh, which was the new technology in the 1920s and 30s, how Roosevelt was able to go ahead and communicate to the nation. Yes, I understand you are suffering during the Great Depression, right. but this is what my administration is trying to do to uh, make your lives better. Um, and, and, and if uh, please for uh, re, uh, listeners, please forgive uh, this personal anecdote. My grandmother just turned 95. She is a child of the uh, Great Depression. Um, one of the reasons why she still to this day votes for the Democratic Party is because she remembers um, sitting around the radio in their little small kitchen in the rented house that they were like three months behind on the rent payments, listening to President Roosevelt speak to her family. Right. Speak to her family. Right. Very specifically, I am here with you. You. That's we right. will get through together. We will. Yes. We and will do I, this and, together. And, and, and he frequently would say during these. Uh, fireside chats, I need you to convey to your elected officials that you support what my administration is doing. Right. Because FDR was trying to overcome a lot of bureaucratic inertia, a lot of legislative inertia, but also a lot of judicial inertia in regards to what he was trying to get done. Right. Well, and it's funny to me. Um, talking about effectiveness as a public communicator fdr was not hungry one day in his life no 
he came from money he came from power yes he he never wanted for anything except the ability to walk yes and i think that that may have connected him in a way that didn't get talked about because nobody talked about the fact that he couldn't walk but when he talked to people about being hungry and being afraid and being you know and having to to overcome he did have something inside that he could pull from yeah to it, say it, i i get it i understand wanting something so badly, badly. and it being out of your reach like it, 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 and, he worked and, and his again, whole life to try to get back to being able to walk and walk. never was able to do it and it's and it's hard to explain why some presidents who um you know Nia, as you pointed out i mean fdr didn't want for anything other than the ability to walk after he contracted polio. On the other hand, we have other presidents um, who also experienced loss, hunger, um, et cetera, but just not being able to, to communicate that in a way that's effective, right? Right. Um, and, and, you, it, it, and when you read accounts of what they're like personally, you're like, man, that just doesn't get conveyed when they speak in public. Right. So before we recorded this podcast episode, uh, listeners, Nia and I were um, talking about presidents who we thought were effective communicators um, in, in, in various speeches. And one that both Nia and I um, um, watched in our youth was given by President Jimmy Carter uh, during his <laughs> one term as president. Um, and uh, when Carter was president, the country was uh, suffering through an energy crisis. Um, uh, and he went on national TV. And I may have the season in which he gave it wrong. I just remember being in my house. Okay. And it was cold. And President Carter comes on the TV in a cardigan sweater <laughs> and basically um, acts like a disappointed parent um, and uh, admonishes the country uh, to do better at curbing their energy use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it, it came off as so tone deaf Nia, you use this expression a lot. A president needs to be able to read the room. And in this case, the room is the country, and in some cases, the entire world, okay? Because as the U.S. presence in the world increased, so did the importance of the president around the world increase. So, you know, when the president speaks, the rest of the world pays attention. It was called, I think, the Malaise speech. Yes. yes. Right? Yes. Because we yes. were, and he didn't actually use the word Malaise, but he was so despondent and tragic. And by the way, it was July. Oh, good. I Lord. just looked it up. Yeah. Okay. So he's wearing a sweater in July. July. <laughs> 
in the White House, like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you talking about? Which is just bonkers. It's bonkers that, and I think probably you and I watched it in rerun. My guess is yes. that as yeah. little kids, we didn't actually pay all that much attention to it. But I'll bet oh. that that fall, it got played a lot. That would be my guess is the clips from it. And I, I know that Saturday Night Live went bonkers with it. Yeah. Um, and because and, 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 how and, could they not? Right. And like, Mia, you're probably correct. The number of times I've actually viewed that speech in courses I took as a college student and as a graduate student. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you're right that part of the problem is he's so tragic in the delivery. Yes. And, okay, presidents regularly have to deliver bad news. And how they deliver bad news is a huge part of their public communication. Yes. But it's also part of their political skill. It's also part of, right, because the only yes. thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? Yeah. That, that speech, I mean, I know we come back to FDR and I, I didn't mean to do that necessarily, but it happens to be one of those times where you're talking about an incredibly dark time in human history and FDR has to announce to the nation that we have just entered World War II, right? Like that we've just been attacked by, what is it, the day that we'll live in infamy? Yes. Right. This, this idea that he has to deliver that news and he has to do it in a way that is both factual but comforting, but also strong. Like it, there's a combination, or, and, or and Bush 43 had to do that after 9/11. Yes, had to come had to come out and say something. You can't just not say something, right? Like that's <laughs> that's not how it works. And so that I think that test is also really interesting. How do they? How do they announce a crisis or handle? Or, or think about, for instance, um, the example of Winston Churchill in Great Britain during the Blitz. I mean, one of the reasons why the opposition party in Parliament asked him to come back and be prime minister was they were counting on his bluster, his... Okay, you know, times are tough, but we're not going to give up, okay? Which was in marked contrast to his predecessor, <laughs> okay? Um, so a lot of it is how do you, you know, acknowledge, you know, the elephant in the room, right? Okay, right. You know, if, you're, if you're FDR, I mean, you can't go ahead and pretend like the country was not suffering during the Great Depression. Right. On, on the other hand, how then do you also convey, yeah, this is this is bad. Okay. A lot of you are suffering. I know you're suffering, but this is what we're going to do. Because this isn't going to get us down. Right. Um, um well and when they do it poorly, boy does it oh yeah it sticks. Yes. When Whatever else may say about about um, Bush forty three, yeah, good job, Brownie. 
was not the thing to say after Katrina. No, nope. And he has been remembered bitterly in some quarters for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in the contrast, right? I mean, because according to many, Bush 43's speeches immediately after the 9-11 attacks, okay, were considered, okay, very good public communication. Right. Some of the best of his presidency. On the other hand, his remarks uh, after Hurricane Katrina uh, were considered um, deeply insensitive, um, suggesting that once again, uh, the federal government was going to ignore the plight of those in the Gulf, Co Gulf Coast region of the country. Um, um, well, and racially insensitive. insensitive and, that's right. I mean, there was yeah. a lot... Which is interesting because then at the fiscal crisis, he, when he gave that speech about, um, about we have to do this because th some things are basically too big to fail, right? Like, yes, yes. We can't let the gut, we cannot let the country fall apart. We can't let fiscally. These yeah, we can't let these corporations and industries fail because they're too big to fail. Too many Americans, jobs, livelihoods, mortgages, rents, ability to go ahead and care for their kids are dependent on these jobs. So whether or not we like what these corporations and industries did, right. whether or not the federal government uh, basically failed to regulate them properly, well, the time for that kind of analysis and recriminations will have to be postponed because right now, what do we have? Okay, we, we have an economic situation um, that we can't let slide into a depression. Right, and the rest of the world's like, please fix it. Please yes. fix it because you're gonna drag us with you if you- That's right. If you go in the hole, we're yep. all going in the hole. Yes. Um, and, I, and it's funny to me how his, that a, an individual can have those, both winning moments and losing moments within their within their presidency. You know what I mean? Like it, what it says to me is that is that communication is complicated. And it doesn't always go the way you think it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. What he was trying to do with the good job brownie was be a cheerleader, and what that came off as as callous. Yes. Right, because it was the wrong moment to be a cheerleader. It was the wrong moment to try to, to yeah, try to put a positive face on some people weren't ready for a positive face yet. Yeah, I mean, because what he should have more than likely done post Hurricane Katrina is acknowledge, even if he didn't believe it, even if he believed uh, FEMA did a good job run by Michael Brown, he should have never said it. What he should right. have just came out and said was, I acknowledge the federal government should have done better okay but this is what we're going to do next right this is what we're going to do next and i think part of that is political skill yes yeah. I, I think he didn't he didn't sense the politics of the moment, moment. and he didn't yes. i i think that there was a failure there of his reading of the political landscape it and that brings me to to President Trump and President Trump's communications, 
which I think fail in large part because he's not a skilled politician in the sense of his political communication or his political skill is virtually non-existent. It's one of his selling points, right? I'm not a politician. And that's I'm, why you should vote for me. Exactly. Because, because since I'm not a politician. I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to tell you how it is. And I'm going to do some things that most politicians would never, ever think about doing. Right. I'm okay. not going to play you like they play you. That's right. Um, but the problem with that is that. Is that. It is a job being right. president that in some ways requires political skill. Okay. That most Americans don't even recognize. Um, and, and what I'm talking about here is. Um, Greenstein mentioned it. Greenstein mentions it in his book, um, but also, it's one of the classic um, uh, presidential studies books of the 20th century, and that was Richard Newstadt's um, uh, Presidential Power. Newstadt basically goes ahead and argues that we've created an expectation gap with the office of president. Because presidents say they're going to do all this stuff, but in terms of institutional power, they have very little. <laughs> yeah, we've discussed the, I'm going to make everybody wear a mask. No, you're not. No, you're not. Right? You don't have that power. Right? Okay. Right? I'm like, gonna, And also, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to forgive all student debt. No, you're not. No, you're not. You don't have that power. You don't right? have like, that power. Right? Okay. So according to Newstat, the president's main power is the power of persuasion, which means you need to have refined, sophisticated, okay, um, grade A political skill. And if you don't, you may not achieve all that much as president. So you're talking about Bush 43, right? Bush 43 in regards to political skill. Um, that situation post Hurricane Katrina in the hands of some presidents would have been used to parlay, if you will, or develop, if you will, other programs um, or other opportunities for the president, I would argue. And you're, and, and some of you who are listening may be like, Augie, are you talking about using? Uh, a natural disaster as a way, I'm like, yes, I am. Because good presidents, okay, will use even the worst of circumstances um, uh, to achieve something. Think about oh, how LBJ um, took Kennedy's assassination and parlayed that into sympathy for an agenda, which by by and large, LBJ lied about. I mean, John F. Kennedy was not pushing boundaries in regards to civil rights legislation. No. Okay, in his first term as president. Right? And yet, it was in memory of Camelot, in memory of President Kennedy. We need people to be treated fairly and equally, and we need, we need the Voting Rights Act. We need the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. We need the Great Society, right? And right. I'm just... In in honor of him, we need this, right? And and I'm like, ah, the senator from Massachusetts probably wasn't all that 
<laughs> all all that racially, you know, um, sensitive. Sensitive, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but that's political skill. Well, and was it Wilson who used World War One to get the League of Nations? Yes. Right. Right. Like World War One, horrible. People died in horrible ways. Millions of people died in horrible ways, and yet he he parlayed that or tried to into a thing that eventually became the United Nations. Right. We need some sort of international. Yeah. I mean, in in, in while the U.S. Senate rejected it. Okay, the League of Nations. Wilson used the peace treaty to end World War One as a way to go ahead and develop, okay, as Nia just mentioned, uh, what would was the, the, the role model or the model for the United Nations post-World War II. I mean, you know, think, think about uh, uh, um, how Reagan frequently took defeats with Congress and turned them into, quote unquote, if you will, political victories. Reagan basically wanted, uh, 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 Reagan's economic policy was known as supply side economics or what his opponent in 1980 called voodoo economics. Right? <laughs> and by the way, that, that person ended up becoming his vice president. Okay? I was gonna say, that's right, yeah. that was Bush 41. Yeah, that was Bush 41, right? But, and okay. I agree with him, it was voodoo economics. Okay, um, or, or, or as the Democrats in Congress uh, uh, eventually referred to it as trickle-down economics, right? Yeah, trickle-down, right. Okay. The theory okay. that if you make rich people richer, it will lift all the boats because they will spend, spend more money, they mm -hmm. will hire more people, they will whatever, 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 and the money will eventually drift down to you and me. That's uh, right. Okay. And where are we with that? But anyway. <laughs> okay. So, but Reagan would then submit budgets to Congress that would call for deep cuts in domestic entitlement programs. Because um, he said he wanted to use those savings uh, to pump up defense spending um, as part of his you know, Cold War battle with the Soviets. Is Reagan where we get welfare queens? Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. That was uh, in his 1980 campaign against Jimmy Carter. Welfare queens driving Cadillacs. That's, that's right. Okay. Uh -huh. um, uh, and uh, so the Democrats, which controlled the Congress during the Reagan administration, were like, yeah, you're not cutting entitlement programs. All right. So instead of, you know, accepting that as a defeat, what Reagan said was, okay, fine. We're not going to cut entitlement programs, but I won't sign the budget unless you give me more money for defense. Star Wars. Okay. So he sorry, not thinking, the movie, the yeah, yeah, the the, the defense the, program. Yeah, the the what? Although uh, I would sound that delighted about the movie as well. Just okay, the, the missile. <laughs> yeah, yes, you would. Okay, You're, you 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 like some science fiction. Right? I do. Okay, but he turned that he turned that into a victory. Right. I mean, he would go ahead and say, hey, we didn't get everything, but, you know, hey, we have a robust, strong national defense infrastructure. Um, and, you know, the Soviets are going to have to go ahead and uh, uh, conduct this war on our terms. 
Well, he also turned political losses into fundraising opportunities for the Republican Party like there was no tomorrow. Tomorrow, yes. And, and a skill, that is a political skill, the ability to take your loss at the hands of the other party and turn it into money. Yes. Because money buys airwaves, money buys signs, money buys all the stuff that helps lubricate elections. But the problem is for some presidents, okay, political skill, politics, okay, is distasteful. They don't like it, right? Um, you know, so many of my colleagues, many of my professional friends, okay, are members of the Democratic Party, and they still bemoan the fact that Barack Obama just didn't like okay, to get involved in the nitty-gritty of politics. They thought his presidency could, could have been even so much more if he had been willing to engage in the kind of, you know, oftentimes low art, okay, of politics, right? And again, I, you know, um, similarly, Carter, right? Didn't Carter yes. suffer from same the same thing of yes. just not having political particular amounts of political skill, which is really weird because well, not really weird, but it's a really it's an interesting opposition to him as a post president, where he's actually quite politically skilled. He yeah, shows up yeah, at crazy right. elections in other countries and helps people work things out. He you know, he's, I mean, he's done all these things in other places that he couldn't do in the United States and couldn't do within the political system of the United States. But and, and, I would and, put two people that if they think that political skill is not important, every single person has to have it in their own job. Unless you work for yourself yeah. and you never speak to another human. Yes. Which, good for you if you can do that. I'm all about your job in Alaska by yourself in the wilderness. And I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. But, um, but if you're not that person, you have to have a certain political skill. You have to have a certain ability to read the room, to, to know what your boss is going to support, what your colleagues are going to support, and, and what is either too soon or out of the box or not ready or whatever and be able to let those things go. You also have to be able to let losses go without bitterness because there's gonna be another round. Like it it doesn't yeah. end, there's no. Yeah, I mean, Nia has heard me say this uh, listeners uh, uh, in a number of contexts. Um, I teach a lot of classes on public administration and I've done a lot of consulting for various agencies and bureaucrats and I, I oftentimes hear from them, you know, I would get more done in my job if it wasn't for politics. <laughs> and, and I try not to just break out in a, you know, full bodied, you know, laugh. Uh, because, you know, as, as Nia just pointed, Nia, as you just pointed out, I mean, there are very few jobs to where you don't have to engage in politics. But in particular, if you're president of the United States, that is your job. That is your job, right? And I don't necessarily have uh, a negative view about politics, okay? Right. 
Um, uh, and those skills are valuable. Th those are the skills of compromise and um, and read, like I said, reading the room. They're also the skill of understanding when to give up and when to push forward. Like, and you know, understanding that you may have to go ahead um, and modify your principles uh, today uh, for the greater good tomorrow. Right. Um, uh, that there are sometimes difficult value choices um, so that uh, things can get done. Um, and, 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 and that's not easy. It's not necessarily all that much fun. But if your job is president and you're supposed to run the executive branch, and increasingly, um, you know, with the modern president, the country and the world is looking for a vision. Um, the United States to have a certain role in the world, well, then you're going to have to engage in politics, right? You're going to have to interact with um, uh, dictators um, from countries um, that we generally think are bad people, <laughs> right? Right, but you have to be able to solve problems with those individuals. You're going to, have, yeah, you're going to have to go ahead and sit down with the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, both of whom who you might think are dumb as a bag of hair, okay? And still interact with them, negotiate with them because they run uh, the two units of the legislative branch. Um, you're gonna have to interact with governors um, and state officials, uh, many of whom um, you might think um, there's a good reason why they will never rise above being governor of a certain state. <laughs> Right. I don't okay. even know how you got here. Yep. Yeah. Right. You're going to have to do that. Yeah. That's and if great. you don't, your presidency will be perceived as a failure. Yes. You will be I, ineffective. I think that Donald Trump is hitting that wall. Yes. Um, yes. During this particular, during the pandemic, I think the pandemic has shown some of his lack of political skill in a, in a way that has been more stark to more people. Um, yeah. And I think history will not be kind to him over the handling of the pandemic. Although in fairness to Donald Trump, there's only so much you can handle a pandemic and then it's just a pandemic, right? Like he, he could never have stopped this pandemic. That's not. Yeah, no president would have been able to. Right. right. I mean, that's okay. not within the reach of any human. Yeah. That was because disease does not recognize border and disease does not recognize your your political party. Right. Like, or oh, I'm only going to infect, you know, ex political party or positional authority. Right. Yeah. COVID-19 COVID doesn't care if um, you're the president or the governor uh, or the prime minister or the dictator of wherever. Right. Or some, or some dude driving a taxi, right? Like yeah. it's equal opportunity. Yeah. So I think that, that part of that seems to come from the idea of, and forgive me for using listeners, a phrase that I'm not entirely certain um, other people other than the humanities use, which is emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This. I mean, basically what you're talking about with emotional intelligence um, is the capacity that you have as a person emotionally, okay, 
to understand process in a healthy way, um, a range of experiences, right? You know, so Nia, you just went ahead and said, you just went ahead and talked about being able to recover the next day from a disappointment or a defeat, okay? Right. The extent to which a person can do that, okay, is a measurement of emotional intelligence. You know what I'm right. Reagan yeah. Reagan was able to do that pretty easily. Yes. Okay. Um, you know. Whereas they, I don't know that Jimmy Carter could do it at all. Yeah, because probably one of the shared attributes between a Jimmy Carter and a Barack Obama is that both of them thought that reason would convince opponents. Yes, a, a failed concept there for any of, of our listeners who think, if I just explain it to you enough, you will believe it. Believe it, right? That, that doesn't work. That does not work, right? Okay. Reason does not always, if you will, uh, win in politics. Right. Sometimes people act illogically because they act illogically. Sure. And you saying, but that's not logical. They're like, uh-huh. And they keep right on doing what they were doing. Sure. Because it okay. feels good, because it gives them the response they want, whatever the reason is that they do that. Anyway, yeah. I just think it's it's funny that you're, I agree with you that those two people probably thought they could just reason you into believing something. Yes. Whereas, you know, for instance, uh, a Ronald Reagan and LBJ, <laughs> okay? Yeah if reason wasn't going to work, okay, then they would be like, okay, well, what else is in my toolkit, right? Yeah, and LBJ would go, oh, look, here's my iron fist. Yes, right? Let me, let me give you a loving slap upside your head with it. Yeah. Thwack. Or, or let me go ahead and threaten your uh, 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 election, election efforts in two years. Oh, okay. that's true. I was thinking about supporting your opponent. Yes. Yeah. How do you feel about having a primary candidate for the first time in 20 years? Yeah. Because I can make <laughs> that happen. Right? right. Ronald Reagan. Right. He wouldn't necessarily threaten people. He would just say, won't you come to the Oval Office, have a handful of jelly beans or a drink? OK, let us go ahead and chat. OK. Um, so, you know, a lot of this in regards to emotional intelligence is how do you process defeat, victory, okay? The sheer daily overwhelming, if you will, responsibility of being president. I mean, let's face it, folks. If you're president, every morning you wake up and you're going to get an intelligence briefing that basically says a whole bunch of people don't like the United States and they want to go ahead and take the nation down. I don't know about you, but if I don't start my day with that kind of news, I'm not entirely sure I have the emotional intelligence to start it off that way, right? Yeah, I don't think I want to get out of bed today because it's only going to be bad news. Like nobody, it's kind of like the evening news, but on steroids because yes, evening news, they always tell you all the bad stuff. And then at the very end of the broadcast, they're like, and now in good news for the last two minutes, and they give you some, you know, firemen got rescued during exactly. a hurricane. Firemen saved 64 kittens from a tree or whatever. And you're like, oh, and that's the end, right? They want to leave you on that note. Yes. But before that, they have told you 
oh, and by the way, the world's on fire in every possible way that it can be on fire. And you're like, oh, okay, well, now I'm scared to leave my house. So then if you're president, you get that every single day and you usually get it several times a day because somebody comes into your office and says oh by the way that thing that wasn't on fire this morning it's on fire now yes. like wait what i thought we solved that yeah we did solve it two hours ago but now it's unsolved yes because something has happened and someone has done something and i can't imagine how terrible that would be so think about the kind of emotional intelligence we are expecting people who are presidents to have, right? You know who I feel sorry for with that? <laughs> There's significant others. <laughs> no, well, yeah, there is that, but that's a whole separate issue. They're, they're spouses and children. Um, I, I feel bad for the people who probably were not equipped to handle that and didn't realize. Somebody like Richard Nixon, right? Yeah. Somebody who, who thinks they will be okay doing it. Like, there's a part of me that's like, I could handle that. And then there's another part of me that's like, he was like, oh, I don't know if I could handle that or not. But if I had a lot of confidence and I thought I could, and then I got there and I couldn't, it's not like you get to quit. No. Like you don't get to just no. say, I mean, you can clearly, yeah. we have had a president resign, but, but that it's was not mentioned. a, it's not a common. No, no. President. You don't get to say, you know what? I'm just not into some bad news today, so don't tell me anything. Like the the briefers go, uh, <laughs> and then they stand there because they don't know what to do, right? Like what what do you, what do you mean you don't want to hear any bad news? And then they all look at each other and they're like, well, uh, okay. And then they leave because what can they do? Like that doesn't happen with the president. The president doesn't get to say, I need a break. Because even when they're off playing golf in Hawaii and it's gorgeous and fabulous, somebody every morning is handing them a piece of paper that says, oh, and by the way, this corner of the world is on fire. Just yeah. so you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it, and that's why, for instance, you know, somebody like a Richard Nixon, who's, ambition to become president was so consuming um, that um, the rest of his emotional, if you will, toolkit was so underdeveloped um, that even when he became president, even when he had notable successes, he was not happy. And we're talking about a president who, again, quite obviously had notable failures, but he had a list about as long as my arm of successes as president, but that wasn't good enough for him. Well, he was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Okay, I mean, he- He, he always waited for, he always expected. He thought that there were so many enemies right. that he, he needed to respond to, to get payback on, that he couldn't just go ahead and say, hey, you know, we just created the Environmental Protection Agency. Or, hey, we just went ahead and worked with states and gave them a whole bunch of block grants to administer, okay, these, you know, entitlement programs. I you think know? he thought people hated him more than they did. Well, I mean, hey. Um, I don't it, think people hated him as much as he but, thought they did. Just like I, but and I forgive me for saying this, and I know Donald Trump doesn't listen to his podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway. The people in people's day-to-day -day life, they don't care about you. 
No. They don't no. hate you. They don't love no. you. They don't care about you. Because every day they're getting up, they're going to school, they're going to work, they're getting their kids together, doing whatever. They are living their lives. The vast majority of people are not out to get you because they don't have time for that. Like, no. they're not part of some vast conspiracy. And yet there are presidents who really believe that there is some sort of conspiracy to see them fail or to see them humiliated or whatever. And I, I just, I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> no, I don't think it's accurate either, right? And, 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 and I oftentimes caution my students, hey guys, you're political science majors. You have chosen this major, you study politics, you think about politics, but do understand, that for the lion's share of the American population, they don't care, one, about politics generally, but two, they don't really give all that much thought to the president or to the governor or whomever, right? right. Okay, because for them, okay, their days are just as you described. They get up, they are concerned about their kids, they're concerned about their mom or their dad, right? They're concerned about their spouse. They're worried about whether or not their boss is going to, you know, fly off the handle and make their workday a living hell, right? Um, are they going to have time to stop at Wawa and get a cup of coffee on the way into work, right? Right. You know, that's the stuff that they are concerned about. You know, oh, hey, when I get home from work, am I going to have to mow the yard? Would it stop raining? Come on, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you know, they, they're not th sitting there thinking, well, I really hate the president. And by the way, I also think that the Congress, you know, uh, isn't doing a good job. No, they don't think about that stuff, right? Right. And they hardly ever think, what can I do to undermine this individual's success? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Like, but they don't think that about their enemies in their own life, let alone <laughs> yeah, right? okay. strangers in Washington. So, you know, to, to kind of sort of wrap things up here. Emotional intelligence is one of those things that is, at least for presidential scholars, very difficult to measure, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, part of, uh, of leadership is being able to demonstrate to the people who work for you, but also to the rest of the country, okay, that um, you can handle disappointment, you can handle setback, you can handle even success, right? You can handle success, okay? Um, that you're willing to get up the next day, even though, as we've just discussed, you're, getting, you're going to get a briefing, okay, from some really serious folks first thing in the morning that basically tell you the rest, rest of the world's on fire, right. okay? Enjoy your, enjoy your day, uh, 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 Mr. or Madam President. Yeah, you're going to want to have oatmeal for breakfast because that's going to be the last bland thing that happens to you today. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Um, XOXO, your briefers. Yeah, right? Like, okay. it's going to start at the top with, please read while eating oatmeal. And then yeah. it's going to give you the rundown of all the if you've not had your breakfast yet, please don't, because you're not going to be able to keep anything down for the next hour and a half, right? Yeah. But, um, and, and that's almost impossible to go ahead and measure, right? Um, but we do know this, because so much is focused on the president, 
it's a job that requires um, a certain amount of emotional intelligence. So, so now we have the whole, they've had an organization, they've taken in intelligence, they've created a vision, they've communicated that vision, and they've also got other people's buy-in, which is the political skill part, yeah, at least yeah, somewhat. Yeah, yeah. And we know that then, then it's up to, it, the last part of it is how do they handle success? Or yeah. how do they handle, handle failure? failure? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I would put to you that uh, we know a little bit about how both of the people currently in the election process are, um, how they deal with that, but it's also not something that we can predict until we see. Sure. Because, because again, a lot of these variables that we just discussed, okay, um, are contextual based on what the heck happens when they're president. <laughs> right. Right. So as much as you may think X thing or Y thing about X person or Y person, if in fact aliens invade next week, all bets are off. Yeah, right. Thank you, Augie. This has been a fun and interesting thing for me to think about. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad, Nia, that um, uh, a couple months ago you went ahead and uh, suggested it because um, uh, 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 there's a lot to discuss. And uh, if nothing else, listeners, I hope you guys understand, uh, based on these last few podcast episodes, um, how difficult um, in the various skills, um, in the various, if you will, personality traits, um, uh, that are required to become president. Um, yeah. we may, we may make jokes, um, and we can be critical, but perhaps maybe have a little bit of understanding, no matter who is president, um, for, uh, what they encounter on a daily basis without the world being on fire. <laughs> right. I, well said, give a little grace. If you, if you need grace in your own life, which you probably do, give a little grace to somebody else. Yep. All right. Thanks, Augie. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. bye. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.